Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy at the Crawford School of Public Policy, and I also head the Children's Policy Centre and the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre. I'm here today once again with my partner in pod, Anna Greta Hunter. Hi, Anna Greta. Hi, Sharon. It's great to be with you. It's always more fun doing this together. We've had a couple of episodes apart, and that was very sad, so it's nice to be back together. It was. Um, And for those who don't know me, I'm a cardiologist and I'm the Human Futures Fellow with the College of Health and Medicine at ANU. Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net, right here at the Crawford School of Public Policy, which is the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. For those of you who want to find out a little more about our degree programs and our short courses, you can find out all we have on offer at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. So do go and have a look at what you could come and study with us. Mm, Absolutely. It's a great time to really think about um, working in the policy field. Um, There's probably never been a more important time. So today we're going to think a little bit around the coronavirus. And uh, as a cardiologist, uh, it might be easy to think that we're going to talk about the health impacts of the coronavirus. But in fact, we'd like to take a different view of this. It's very interesting. I find myself regularly at the moment reflecting on 12 months ago where we were, and it was around about this week, 12 months ago, uh, where here in Australia we went into our first lockdown as we were just beginning to really appreciate what what the SARS-CoV-2 infection might mean and what a global pandemic might look like. Since that time, we've learned so much about the virus, about its structure, about the immune response, about how it's transmitted and the effects of infection, from mild and asymptomatic infection through to fatal infection, with that phenomena of the long COVID in between. Alongside the biology of the infection has been the social narratives, how the pandemic affects lives, not just through infection and illness, but through economic and social change. And these social and economic factors are recognised as risks to drive infection, with crowded accommodation, families and groups who are, listen- who are living with economic precarity often taking the risk of infection and transmission out of necessity much more than choice. In Australia, we learned how important it was to provide adequate economic support with mechanisms like JobKeeper and JobSeeker 
playing quite an essential role in suppressing or perhaps even eliminating in a functional way the, the coronavirus pandemic. So now we see the Australian federal government wind back the social security support, taking the job seeker back to what one of our guests today has noted to be the second lowest level of income support in the OECD. And while there are concerns for people who are out of work, there's also growing unease about the number of Australians who are in insecure work. Amongst the most adversely impacted during the pandemic due to reduced reduction in hours, many people in insecure work have also been at risk from the health perspective. Australia's response to the pandemic has been amongst the best in the world, but with the vaccines being rolled out and the country adapting to this new normal, there's genuine questions about how much our policymakers want this to look like the old normal, or whether this is an opportunity to take stock and to do things better. So today on the pod, we want to look at the public policy in regard to some of our citizens' most at-risk population, those who are out of work, those who are in insecure or unstable employment, We want to look at what policymakers have learned or have not learnt yet from the coronavirus pandemic and the crisis therein, and how we can apply these lessons to ensure that Australia's most vulnerable people are better supported going forward. Today, we've got two excellent guests joining us to discuss these issues. Sharon, could you introduce our guests? I would be delighted to introduce and to welcome our guests. So firstly, we have Professor Peter Whiteford, who is Professor at the Crawford School of Public Policy, uh, one of my dear colleagues there. Peter, as many of our listeners will know, has published extensively on a whole range of issues around Australia's and the international systems of income and support and benefits. Uh, Peter previously was the Principal Administrator in the Directorate of Employment, Labor and Social Social Affairs um, at the OECD in Paris. A tough gig, I always think, being in Paris for a few years, but I'm sure Peter was working very hard. Um, And Peter has also worked at the Social Policy Research Centre at UNSW. I'm also so delighted to welcome Camelini Lokuge. Camelini is Associate Professor and Senior Fellow at the Research School of Population Health uh, here at the ANU in the College of Health and Medicine. And Camelini leads the Humanitarian Research Program. Uh, Camelini is an expert in public health resources to humanitarian crises and has done some phenomenal work in that area. She's worked as a doctor and a medical epidemiologist for Médecins Sans Frontières, for the World Health Organization and the International Committee of the Red Cross. In 2010, Camelini received an incredibly well-deserved Medal of the Order of Australia for the work that she has done. Peter and Camelini, welcome to the pod. Thank you. Thank you. Peter, perhaps we could start with you and talk a little bit about the recent announcement um, around uh, job seeker and the new permanent rate. And you've written about this um, and what it means. So the government has announced the first permanent increase to the unemployment rate in decades, um, or so it has been presented. Um, increasing the base rate by $50 per fortnight. But of course, that's a decline from what we saw um, in the COVID supplements. Um, what do you make of both the announcement, but more substantially, what do you make of what this is going to mean for people who are dependent on those benefits in Australia? Well, um, as it's been referred to, um, when you look at how our benefits before the pandemic compare with other high-income countries in in the OECD, um, before the pandemic, um, 
if when you became unemployed or, um, for whatever reason uh, in Australia, your your income dropped by more than any other high income country. Um, and for the first couple of months, it stayed lower than it was in any other high income country. Now, the longer you're unemployed, um, other countries drop. We don't improve, but uh, we improve relative to other places. But uh, so we used to be literally the lowest in the OECD. So this um, increase that's just been announced that will take effect, I think, in April moves us up one place, literally in the OECD. So. It appears, um, you know, the government's claimed it's the most substantial increase in payments for the unemployed in decades, and that's true, uh, but it uh, it barely moves us in relation to um, uh, in relation to other countries. Now, you know, sort of, should we be compared, worried about how we compare with other countries? Now, the government has actually defended uh, what it's doing on the basis that, um, unlike most other places, um, uh, we don't have social insurance. We don't um, make employers and employees contribute to the benefits they're going to receive when they become unemployed. We don't set the benchmark for payments as a percentage of previous earnings. So we we don't have a social insurance system as most countries in Europe and North America do. Um, But that doesn't actually change the reality that when you become unemployed, your income drops uh, by more than just about anywhere else. So the reality is that for people becoming unemployed, we've barely moved. That means that, you know, sort of the economic impact um, for both for the population as a whole and for individuals is bigger in Australia than it is elsewhere. So this is a, you know, one can only welcome some sort of increase, um, but it's, uh, it's not a very substantial increase. I heard someone actually describe it as uh, that, the, that there'd been some workshopping that, uh, that it was the lowest possible acceptable number. Um, do you know? Do we have any sense about how they arrived at this particular number? I can only go by what's yep. in public statements. I don't have any uh, insider information. Um, the um, the prime minister defended it um, when asked how they decided on that number. Um, he said that um, this was increasing the payment from about thirty eight percent of the minimum wage to forty one percent of the minimum wage. Interestingly, that's a replacement rate. Um, so even though the government's also said we don't do replacement rates, that's the, how they've judged it. They picked 41%, 40, between 41 and 42% because that's what it was at the end of the period of the Howard government. Um, so it, it's roughly where it was in relation to the minimum wage um, in 2007. Uh, the point about that is that during the period of the Howard government, um, it fell relative to the minimum wage. Um, now the the reason the reason why it's fallen and relative to the minimum wage and the reason why it's so low is that uh, since the since about 1994 it's only ever been increased in line with inflation. So it assumes that um, you know people who are unemployed now basically in real terms need to spend the same amount of money as people did. 27 years ago. Mm. Um, so, so it's the lack of uh, movement with community incomes and with wages that uh, causes this gap. Now, as I said, it f- actually had fallen under the um, under the under the Howard government. So, why you pick the end of the Howard government rather than the beginning of the Howard government when it would be closer to 50% of the minimum wage, much more substantial um, than um, the increase proposed. Is a bit unclear, but that seems to be the over rationale that um, that it puts it back to the relativity it was at the end of the Howard government. 
And maybe just from my edification, where is the poverty line in terms of pro- the proportion of the, the Well, it's not related way. particularly. Um, there are a couple of poverty lines. There's no official poverty line in Australia, but um, the one that's commonly used in academic research is similar to what's used in Europe um, and by organisations like the OECD. Um, so they take 50% of median income adjusted for household size. So it's relative to the rest of the population. I think that you would virtually have to take it back to the um, the maximum level that the time, this time last year when the coronavirus supplement was introduced. So you'd be um, roughly doubling the payment to, to get to the poverty line. Yeah, so when you think about the, the real-life impacts for people of living on that type of income, it becomes fairly stark in terms of what that actually means. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of um, – um, it's more than qualitative evidence, but organisations like Anglicare and um, uh, ACOS and, and a lot of um, non-government organisations have looked at the impact of what that extra money meant this time last year to, to, uh, to people on benefits because uh, it went to people who were already on benefits as well as those who had just become unemployed. And um, – that, uh, you know, people were able to pay their bills, overdue bills, go to the dentist, um, replace consumer durables, a whole range of things. So, so the increase did have a, um, a very striking influence that the recipients reported and also, uh, the Center for Social Research and Methods at the ANU modeled its impact on poverty and it, um, was associated it, for a few months anyway, with the, one of the biggest reductions in income poverty that we've seen in Australia. Yeah. I'm also interested to hear your thoughts, Peter, and, and, and Camelini, to hear yours as well, about some of the other conditions that are, have been uh, that were introduced as part of the announcement about the permanent rate of job seekers. So we had uh, the um, requirement of 20 applications every month, for, um, to show that people were uh, actively looking for employment. Um, and we also had the idea of uh, some kind of um, phone line where employers could report on people who they feel have not taken a job they should have taken. Um, so there's a very um, – there's a strong sense here of surveillance of people who are receiving benefits. Peter, what's your take on that kind of approach? Well, I mean, it has been the approach um, Australia and many other high-income countries have taken towards the unemployed and increasingly to, um, you know, groups like uh, lone parents and to some extent some of the some people with disability over the years. So, um, again, this is a policy perspective that the OECD over many decades has promoted, which was what's called activation, that you you, you, you have to activate people to um, to actively look for work. Um it's always been a requirement in Australia and elsewhere that, you know, to receive an unemployment benefit, you have to prove that you're actively looking for work. But but it's been ramped up, um, particularly since the 1990s. And it's, a, you know, it's sort of, um, I think there are a number of observations about it, is that it, it, it's a sort of view that um, you have to hassle people to, to get them into work, that they're naturally rather lazy, they won't look for these jobs. Um and it just reinforces both, I think, the stigma about the unemployed, um, that they're, that, you know, to use a famous Australian phrase, which is pretty terrible, that they're dull bludgers, um, and uh, that um, it, there's not a – I don't think there's a lot of evidence that 
um, that that hassling necessarily works um, because the level of payment is so low, you know, that you can more than double your uh, – you, um, if, you, if you get a full-time minimum wage job, if the replacement rates are around 42%, you you get a you, – you increase your income two and a half times, right? Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, that's a massive increase in income. Um, so – there's been research on the ABS labour force surveys conducted by um, carried out by Professor Jeff Borland at the University of Melbourne, which shows that when the payment was at its height about a year ago, um, and for quite some months, um, that there was no reduction in the rate of movement from unemployment into work. That you know people were still actively looking for work and moving into work when it became about. Yeah, when the, when the opportunity became available, so it's a. I think it's a sort of, um, as I said, it's a, the idea that if you hassle people, they'll be more likely to get jobs. Whereas um, the level of payment's so low that um, anybody, yeah, will be actively looking for work anyway. Catalini, I'm I'm interested in in hearing your views also on that conditionality. Um, you've written. Um, around the the kind of the, what's happened to, to work in the context of COVID-19. But before we explore that, I'm interested in your thoughts about the, the conditionality that's required around um, receiving unemployment benefits. I'm not an expert in unemployment benefits, but all my work uh, in public health, we work with communities. So it doesn't matter what technology is, what, um, how sophisticated your health system is, if you don't have a real partnership with the communities you're working with, you don't control disease. And I think COVID's make that very clear. Uh, you know, places that had, for example, the US was assessed as having the highest capacity to respond to health security threats. And I think we all know how well they've gone. Um, I think it's tragic, you know, half a million people dead in a system that should not have. Whereas you have a country like Vietnam, you know, uh, developing country who has done very well. So, and I think that's based on the understanding that unless you engage with your community in a, in a true partnership, you, you don't achieve your goals. And I think this view of that people are fundamentally lazy, stupid. So often health promotion is that people are empty vessels full of, with an ignorant void that you've got to fill with information. Is that that you, the state knows best and you've got to poke people to get them to work. You've got to fill this knowledge gap to help them under, make them do what needs to be done. Whereas what I see much more often is people make very, very sophisticated decisions, whether it's I choose to smoke because my life is so bad that smoking is the only pleasure I get and I can, you know, I, I choose to spend that money on. And so if you change the circumstances around that, then that is the best way to achieve change. So I would say it's the same for that. But, yeah, I, I think also there's a view that that's what the general community wants, that people don't want to spend their taxes on, as you said, Peter, dull bludgers. Whereas, again, I think COVID's made it very clear that as a society, Australians value collective goods. So the whole of our society locked down to protect the health, largely of our elderly, to protect our health system. And I, I didn't see resentment around that, you know, people. And I do think that here Australians were rewarded because they they achieved control of transmission. They were able to get back to 
you know, living in society. And I think, again, not knowing labour relations, but if you think of Medicare, every Australian government from whichever part of the political spectrum knows that you don't mess with Medicare. That's a guaranteed way to lose an election. And what is that? It's universal health care, right? It's that our society, I think, you know, 1940s, 50s, one, I think the highest cause of non-criminal imprisonment was unpaid medical debt. And there were decisions made by the Australian community and those they represent that we will invest as a community in giving health care to those who need it. So I think unemployment benefits are the same. You know, and I do think if you asked Australians, they would say, I want everyone and I'm willing to pay if I can. And again, COVID has shown that if you protect, and I wouldn't call them the most vulnerable. You know, we've had many people go out there and say our supermarket workers are our heroes. If, if they are, and I think all of our community recognise that, then we, they should be rewarded, supported and valued in that way. I think that's a great spot for us just to take a really short break. We'll be back in a moment. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're still here with Peter Whiteford and Kamalini Lokogi talking about supporting people who are out of work or finding themselves in insecure in jobs and particularly exploring that dynamic between our population health and well-being and the way in which we care for people at the margins of society. Many people in secure jobs did find themselves on the front line uh, in all sorts of different ways during the coronavirus pandemic, and I know that this is an ongoing uh, factor around the country and particularly around the world. And I think societies are beginning to realise how essential our delivery drivers and supermarket workers and those who are working in hotel quarantine actually are. Kamalini, can you tell us about some of the health risks that insecure workers might face? I think, or we all know, right, we're now we, we learn all the details of breaches in quarantine. But if we think back to March, we had cases where hotel workers had to um, go to work because they had no sick leave and that resulted in transmission. So, and it's not new to COVID. If people have to choose between feeding their children, paying the rent, or protecting the community, it's it's not a fair choice. And um, I personally, I would choose to feed my kids and keep a house over their head. So I think all the measures that were avoiding job keeper, job seeker, provided a lot of protections, particularly for insecure workers. But we saw both federal and state governments bring in 
a range of other measures, uh, pandemic leave. So first of all, it was if you got COVID and you didn't weren't covered by other things, but then it was if you had to get tested and wait for results because we saw that people would get tested and go to work because, again, no sick leave. Um, and I think, you know, it's the right thing to do. As Peter said, you know, we are a really lucky country if we can't afford to keep people above the poverty line. That says something about what we value. But I think it's also very clear that it's the smart thing to do. So those policies were brought in because it was clear that they were a risk to transmission uh, of having people who were forced to go to work uh, under in the in situation where it was a choice between public health control of disease or uh, keeping your family fed and clothed. And I think that, um, you know, it, it's been clear for essential workers. The Age, Royal Age Care Commission uh, clearly the inquiry showed that um, insecure, poorly trained, poorly paid workers were a, were a driver for all the things we've seen in aged care, including uh, outbreaks. So Melbourne is, has been most affected by COVID and we saw that part, one of the drivers of transmission was people having to work across multiple aged care facilities in order to make a living wage and working in casual work that was insecure, that wasn't guaranteed. So they needed to make sure they had enough money while they could and again, that brought in measures around supporting people to work just in one aged care facility. I would think that, you know, now is the time to um, legislate to make those measures permanent. We've seen the value to public health. Um, it seems to me, and we're, we're not through this yet. The vaccine has just arrived. And the same applies, you know, we're telling our frontline workers, whether they be quarantine workers or aged care workers or cleaners, hospital cleaners, we're telling them we value you, you're first in line for the vaccine. Now, going back to trust, and we all know, right, if, if your partner's cheating on you and then says, but you can trust me with your money, it kind of it doesn't work that way, right? So you can, you know, send the message, get vaccinated, we value you, you're a frontline worker, but at the same time we don't value enough to pay you a decent wage and give you sick leave. People are not stupid. They don't separate one from the other and I think for whatever we want to achieve as a society, having those who are, they're not vulnerable, they're, they are they are at risk because they do the work to keep our societies functioning. If we want our societies to function, if we want meat on the shelves at Woolies, if we want our elders to be fed, to be washed, to be clothed, we need, we need it's the smart thing to do. Absolutely. Sharon, this is reminding me again of the value of caring. And this is a theme that seems to come up in quite a number of the conversations that Sharon and I have had in the last six months. Um, and that this is a conscious choice that we have in our policy space is how we value the human life and the human condition, how much we value population health. Um, and like you, Kamalini, I think the shining beacon of hope out of the 2020 pandemic has been the the obvious appreciation of the the, uh, the Australian community to the to the health and well being of the population as a whole. It's been quite an extraordinary one. Yeah, and Peter, I'm I'm interested to hear your thoughts on some of these issues too. We were talking earlier um, about the requirement that people show they're actively engaged in seeking work. Um, 
And that often doesn't take account of, of other aspects of care work, the unpaid care work that people often do. And I know in some of the research that I've done with children who are living in poverty, they talk about the stress that their parents are under because they're trying to comply with conditions. They're also you know, sometimes trying to find ways of earning additional income, um, but they're also looking after their children. Sometimes they're looking after aged parents. Peter, from when we look across other OECD countries, do we have any examples of countries that pay greater attention and perhaps give greater respect and acknowledgement to unpaid care work? Um, or, or is this an issue we see worldwide? Well, it's um, it varies enormously. There are, there are certainly countries that I think probably in um, Northern Europe that um, uh, do more, but there's been a, there's been a shift, I think, um, over time in the assumption of basically the role of women, whether um, uh, women in social security, uh, whether their primary role is as carers or whether they should be um, supposedly treated in the same way as men and um, uh, and be seen as workers. And, um, you know, say, say for, for example, um, you know, uh, in 2006, the system of support for parents in who low-income parents in Australia was changed so that um, fundamentally, when if you're if you're in a couple and your youngest child is six, or if you're a lone parent and your youngest child was eight, you were assume it was you were then treated as if you could um, be actively looked look for work, and you know, so there were uh, job search requirements put on those groups of people. And in 2013, under the Labor government, um, some of the people who had been um, who'd been grandfathered—that means that um, this new change hadn't, uh, because they were already on benefits, this new change didn't affect them. Uh, they about eighty or ninety thousand people were moved from what used to be what's called parenting payment single onto New Start and required to actively look for work. So there was this. There's been this change in the treatment of parents in Australia. Um, as I said, dating back to about 2006, but um, but also extended in 2013. So it's both sides of both sides of politics have, have, have gone down this direction. I think there is generally in most countries there is the assumption um, that um, women should be actively engaged in the labour force, but as you say, it hasn't necessarily taken full account of their role as carers. Um, um, at one stage, I, I've read some of the sort of um, uh, people who are, they're not quite neoliberal economists, they were people who established that uh, way of thinking about the world. Uh, and it's really striking is that care does not appear anywhere in this approach to economics. Um, whereas, of course, what we know is that um, uh all human life begins in a state of complete vulnerability where somebody has to care for children, right, and, and very, very young babies. And again, as age care shows us, most human life ends in a condition of vulnerability where somebody has to um, care. And um, as I'm sure everybody here knows that um, both care for children and care for um, our parents, uh, the burden of that predominantly falls on women. You know, there's no question about that in terms of um, looking at time use surveys and what we know about the impact on, on labour force participation. So um, I, I, I don't think we're necessarily – I mean, um, 
you know, there are different ages at which uh, women are assumed to no longer be required to have full-time work, care work, um, and that varies across countries. Um, we're still we're, not, we're we're certainly not the lowest. I mean, you know, sort of in some Canadian provinces, you can be expected to go back to work at the age of three months, right? Um, uh, and um, so, so, so there's been this general movement, I think, across high-income countries that uh, shifting more of the, you know, the assumed role of women as workers as well as carers. Um, but I don't think they've resolved the care issue. Um, and, you know, we see that pretty clearly in, you know, what's happened in, in institutions over time, you know, as well. Um, so it's a sort of... Um, it's something I don't think um, that uh, society has really worked through um, in a in a comprehensive way. I mean, the other thing that's of course complicated about it this is that it's an enormously complex pattern of you know care that um, people give or need to give at different different times, and there's no one easy way of saying you know this is this is the actual division of responsibility when you reach the age of whatever it is or whatever. It's sort of it's a very individual. Um, it, it's very individual, but it's incredibly common, right? You know, it's not, it's not, it's not, um, it's something um, that impacts on everybody. And as I said, you know, all human life starts in the same way and we don't necessarily all end up in quite the same way, but it, it's usually a condition of vulnerability where we need care as well. I think, Petty, no, I'm really struck by that point that you make. Uh, which is so true that really most countries haven't worked through this yet. We haven't as a, a, a kind of a global community fully worked through this and how we should balance these issues of paid employment and unpaid care work and other aspects of life, which I find absolutely extraordinary <laughs> when we put that together with the point that you quite rightly make, that everyone begins life with absolute vulnerability. Most people end life in that way. And right throughout, care is so essential, you know, to us living a good life. But the fact that we haven't come to policy solutions, I really do continually find extraordinary. <laughs> well, yeah, it's an, I mean, you know, there's been a complete revolution in, you know, uh, women's role in the labour market in the last 50 years in high income countries. Um, but it's still incomplete. You know, I don't think we've properly developed the institutions that, um, that get the best possible outcomes. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not quite sure how to define the best possible outcome. All I know is that they're better than what we've got, right? Absolutely. We've got quite a bit of work to do. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm reflecting again on, on last week's uh, conversation we had for the International uh, Women's uh, Day um, and that the structures of the labour market are, are a really important part of that. And the, this messiness of humanity, I'm going to use that phrase again, that, that bringing in the human condition into the decision-making and um, that we often make decisions on the basis of an economic uh, paradigm where it probably doesn't take as much consideration for the role of human relationships and, and the messiness of humanity. Does it, do we take enough consideration, do you think, of the health benefits of caring for each other in our communities, Kamalini? What, what do you think? I don't think so. And if you think about, like, early childhood, it's clearly uh, a, one of the strongest predictors of future physical, mental health, um, your productivity, your capacity to contribute. So it's both the, the right thing to do again and the smart thing to do if you want citizens that would 
enter the labour market and be productive, pay their taxes, contribute. So I think um, if you think of women, if you get to a point where socially and culturally and economically, legislatively, paternity leave is seen as the same as maternity leave, then you you will get rid of the, the fact that most women are expected to care for their child when they deliver or largely, and I've I lived in societies like in the Netherlands where they're getting much closer to that, where I had colleagues who saw no difference between the the male or female partner taking leave when a child was born. But I think it's also cultural, right? It's um, in a workplace, if men are judged for taking paternity leave, it's harder for them to do so. So, But I, I do think, coming back to it's a good investment. And then if you think at the end of life, um, it's our elders that have built our society, they've paid taxes. Uh, I, I guess, again, it, it is, there's a, a natural justice aspect, but it's also it, it, it's not smart to have... Uh, parts of our society that are neglected, poorly fed. Um, and, again, one thing I've worked on different pandemics for a long time, they're really good at clarifying and identifying the weaknesses in your society and exploiting those for t- transmission, and that's what we saw during COVID. Kamalini, I, I know that Anna Greta has some questions on exactly that issue around where um, the, the experience of this pandemic is, is leading us and what we can learn from it. But I just wanted to ask you a little about your thoughts about the points that you made on parental leave and, uh, sorry, on paternity leave and maternity leave. And it always seems to me from the work that I've done around sort of gender and policy and what gender equity might really look like is that we need to think about this in terms of maternity leave and recognise that giving birth for some women, for many women perhaps, is quite a physical and emotional experience. And for many women who want to breastfeed, then there are there is a period of time where time is needed, you know, to to actually be there in your baby's life and to deal with all of those incredible changes. And it always seems to me that maternity leave is essential for that and to recognise that it is women that play those roles. But then to think about parental leave and when we get to a certain point that both both fathers or mothers can care for a child and so parental leave is that can be equally shared between partners becomes really important in thinking about gender equity. I'm just interested in in hearing your thoughts on whether that is perhaps a way that we should be thinking about those periods of leave. I think it's true, maternity, men can't breastfeed, men can't give birth, but equally I think uh, there are many women who want to go back to work. But I think it's more about having a true choice. So we pretend women have a choice because they are able to apply for the same jobs as men, but we know that it's not a true choice, right, or not a level playing field. So I think it it if we come to a point where, uh, you know, a father has who wants to stay home has just as much support, capacity to stay home as a mother, then I think we that's true choice. Uh, and I do think there are societies that are closer to that than Australia. 
I always think about it when we're employing people um, in a hospital setting or in other places. Uh, when you've got young people and you've, you're looking at a male and a female candidate and you're taking them on for a 12-month period, I want to think that both of them may take six months leave. I want to have that, that in my brain that both of them are just as likely to take whatever parental leave is entitled. And I don't want to be subconsciously or, or consciously even thinking that that's a female thing, not a male thing. I think it should be something that we regard as a family leave. It's there for both of them. And I want it to change how I think and I'm, how I'm thinking as a woman. Yep. 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 Carmelini, let's go back to what sorts of things we should be learning from the coronavirus pandemic. And uh, you know, speaking, hearing you speak about the way in which uh, global pandemics highlight um, the social, the, the the fracture points of our society, I, I could listen to you talk about this for a very long time. I think in, with the, this current pandemic, we're regarding Australia as having responded quite well to the coronavirus pandemic, and I, I know you played an important role in this. And that, that particularly meant that we uh, we gave security to our vulnerable population during that time, that we, we gave sufficient support to provide the basic needs, and in fact, more than just basic needs, we gave people some dignity, I think, during that period. I want to, as we're getting towards wrapping up today's conversation, uh, do you think Australia can or should continue down this track, or do you think we'll see this return to a pre-COVID attitude and policy? Do you think we can hold on to the learning um, of, of caring for society's more vulnerable populations? Again, I think we go back to is it vulnerability or is it the fact that, you know, we have people who we we ha- ask uh make sure we can go to Woolies and buy toilet paper in the middle of a pandemic, make sure our garbage is collected, make sure our aged care facilities have decent food, you know, have uh, care. So, and there's an intersection of risk. If you look in every setting internationally and in Australia, those people are also the people who generally are more likely to live in public housing, more likely to live in a household where the, the mother may be an aged care worker, but the father is an Uber driver. So there's an a intersection of risk. And also because of socioeconomic status, more likely to have health, uh, chronic disease, more likely to have behaviours such as smoking, more likely to be overweight. So it, it's an intersection of risk that is, I think, shouldn't be seen as vulnerability, but seen as if we want our society to continue to function and meet the needs our needs, then we need to support these people to engage in in the, the in their lives in a more productive and supported way. And like I said, the job of a virus like coronavirus is, or, or any infectious disease. I've worked on Ebola, worked on you know avian influenza. Their job is to find those weaknesses, and those are the weaknesses where, if they enter, they have the most the highest chance of spreading uh, across society and I think we're smarter than, <laughs> you know, a, a small collection of proteins. We, <laughs> we we as a society, I think if we ask our community, yeah. they will say, of course, I, I want my supermarket workers supported and that's the rhetoric we heard in the middle of the pandemic. I do think if we asked our community what they think, is the smart and the right thing to do, it'd be clear what the answer was. Peter, what do you think we can learn from what we've seen around um, income support, the experience of, of JobKeeper and JobSeeker and all those debates? What can we learn from that as we move forward? Well, I'd just really like to emphasize the point that's already been made, uh, that um, 
the pandemic has really exposed the weaknesses of our, of our social model because that's where you know that's where things don't work right um so you, you know if you take casual workers who by definition the you know just the definition of casual workers by the Bureau of Statistics is they don't have paid leave, right? So they don't have paid sick leave or paid holiday leave. And then there's also the self-employed. Now, when you add those two groups together, that's about 40% of the Australian workforce. Now, the self-employed you know, have to provide for themselves, right? Um, and um, so, I mean, the other issue that we see, I think, where the vulnerability is exposed, there are two other main areas. Um, one is the multiple job holders, you know, the fact that people um, either, you know, go to work in more than one aged care facility or uh, they work as a security guard and then go off and work in a pizza shop or whatever. Uh, you know, it's that sort of, that's the sort of need for multiple job holding. The other thing which I think that um, we haven't really fully seen the consequences of it, it hasn't got as much attention as it deserves, is that um, – there are like there are there are two million people residing in Australia who potentially have almost no rights to social security, and they're temporary foreign workers. So, um, the largest single group are New Zealanders, who over the last um, twenty years have been systematically excluded, um, depending on the visa in which they came to Australia, from social security rights. There are students. Uh, there are four, five, seven visa. People, well, used to be four, five, seven visas and backpackers. Now, in a normal circumstance, I don't think foreign students should have rights to social security. But in a pandemic, we need income support for everybody. Yeah, um, uh, it's just common sense. It's not. It's not. It's not. You know, wanting to expand the welfare state to a whole new group of people. It's about how do you control public health, and so. I think that we need to really rethink um, who gets paid sick leave, um, what are the conditions under which you get paid sick leave. Uh, we really need to think what's the protection of migrant workers. Uh, yeah, maybe, as I said, it's something that only applies in a pandemic, not in, a, not in normal circumstances, but you have to be willing to turn that on, you know, as soon as you need to. Um, the Australian government, I think, has been pretty reactive, pretty strongly reactive, but um, it. Um, I, I'm afraid I'm not sure that they have actually learned the lessons from that. What they have done has been largely successful and they need to think about, you know, taking those lessons forward um, as we recover economically. So I think we could talk about this for quite a lot longer, but um, I'm going to draw to a close with a final question that we'll probably offer to both of you. What's the number one recommendation? What's the main thing we should learn uh, and that we should hold on to and give to our policymakers and our listeners to help improve the system as it stands? And I'm thinking about social security broadly. Well, I, I think the adequacy of payments is the big issue. Yeah, you know, I mean, um, yeah, you can improve the coverage um, definitely, but if the payment's not adequate, then um, people are going to you know sort of um, not have the full capacity to flourish that they should have. These types of diseases make clear you're only as strong as your weakest link. So if if those in society, the, the weakest, the least, with the least, I guess, elasticity, resilience, are those we, we keep at the below, well below the poverty line, well, 
that's where we're going to again have to respond. And as even if you don't care about anything else, prevention is a lot, lot cheaper than cure. And if you ask the people in Melbourne who've been in and out of lockdown, it's also a lot more pleasant, right? Mm. So I would say benefits is all. Yep, yep. Everyone has a decent life. Yep. What a fantastic way to draw this conversation to a close. Thank you so much for the two of you speaking with us today. Yeah, that was a fantastic conversation, Camelinia and Peter. Thank you so much. Anna Greta, what are your thoughts around all of these issues that we keep hearing about in terms of care for one another, the importance of care, the importance of treating people decently? There are some recurring themes there are. that keep coming there up. There are, no, and, and uh, it's impossible for me not to go back over again the extraordinary series of conversations we had last year around wellbeing economics and how we really need to articulate that this is a deliberate decision that we make as a society, that we're making choices about how we care for each other, the value that we place on human life and human existence, and that we've got an opportunity through things like our social security uh, sector to make meaningful difference to the quality of life that is lived in Australia and to the health and well-being of Australians as a broad population. And it's not just through infectious diseases. And I know Carmelini and I could probably speak quite for, for quite a while around chronic non-communicable diseases, diseases like heart disease and lung disease and mental health challenges that we know are magnified uh, through these fault lines in our society. And so um, it's such an important conversation for us to have at this beginning of 2021. Yeah, and I think we we heard such important points from both Peter and Camelini about what we need to learn from this horrendous experience of pandemic so that we don't keep recreating the problems that we have. So, you know, it really is about how we genuinely learn from what has happened over the past year or so. Listeners, that is time for us to leave you now. Thank you once again for joining us for this conversation with Camelini and, and Peter. Please do remember to get in touch with us to let us know what you're thinking about these conversations that we're having on the pod. You can contact us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum or the old-fashioned way by email podcast at policyforum.net. Perhaps the best way to contact us is through our Facebook group. If you go to Facebook and just type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar, you'll find us and you'll find our active Facebook community who are always sharing ideas about the conversations that we're having. Please do remember to leave us a review. We love to hear what you're thinking about us. And you can subscribe to us wherever you get your favourite podcasts. We hope ours is one of your favourites. We're on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you prefer to use. We will be back next week with another exciting episode to continue these conversations about how we can change societies for good. But for now, from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye. Goodbye, Sharon. I'll see you next week. It's bye-bye from Anna Hunter as well. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves 
without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rustolium.